Uh, every good story, uh, no matter where you encounter it, no matter what it is, every good story is going to have at least one tipping point. One moment in the story where you're going to wait with bated breath to see what kind of story this is going to be. Uh, these moments usually come somewhere in the middle. Uh, and when you get there, you know that you're there because all of a sudden, as, as you wait, as you sit there tense, you recognize that everything that happened before has led us to where we are in that moment. As you sit there on the edge, you know that what happens next, that what comes next, is going to make all the difference. It's going to determine what kind of story this is going to be. Uh, if you think about it, I bet that you can recall when that moment is in all of your favorite books and movies. Uh, you can even identify them in history. Uh, one that always comes to me is Dunkirk, right? You have this moment where the British army is trapped on the French coast between the German army and the sea. And it's a tipping point. Uh, we know as we wait there that what happens next, the next thing to happen is going to determine what kind of story that is going to be. Either it's going to be a story of tragedy and defeat, or it's going to be a story of rescue and victory. It was a tipping point. The Bible has them too. After all, it's history and literature. The Bible's actually full of moments like this. Uh, the one I always think of comes in Genesis. It's in the story of Joseph. It's this great moment when Joseph's brothers are brought desperately to Egypt seeking food. And they come unknowingly before their own brother, who they do not recognize. The same brother they had sold into slavery all those years ago. Uh, and we can see, as we sit in the tension of that moment, that everything that happened before in that story has brought us right here to this one point in time. Uh, Jacob's favoritism for Joseph, his brother's jealousy, their choice to sell him into slavery rather than to kill him. Joseph's time in prison, and then his eventual rise to the right hand of Pharaoh. Uh, we know as we wait there that what happens next is going to make all the difference. We know we're at a tipping point. Uh, we, we know that, that this could easily become a story of vengeance, long delayed. Uh, maybe it's a story of justice, an eye for an eye, when the brothers who had sold Joseph into slavery will now be sold by Joseph into slavery. But then as the story unfolds, we come off the tipping point and we discover in a surprising twist, as Joseph embraces and forgives his brothers, that this is after all not a story of vengeance, but a story of mercy and forgiveness. It's a story of the wisdom and sovereignty of God in a fallen world. The Bible is full of these kinds of moments, both small and large. But maybe the largest and most important one comes at the eve of Jesus' birth. We don't often think of it this way because we already know what happens next. But for a moment this morning, I think it's maybe worth trying to remember that for the people who were alive at that time, it was not at all obvious what kind of story this was going to turn out to be. At the moment uh, where Jesus is born, we find ourselves at the same kind of narrative tipping point in the biblical story. Uh, but this time, within the vast and ancient story of God and Israel and all creation. And I suggest to you, the gospel authors know it. They know that they're at a tipping point. Uh, if you look at the beginning of the gospels of Matthew and Luke, what you find is the author's way of telling us that. 
Uh, They include a genealogy, not just so that we would know who Jesus' relatives are, but as their way of reminding us of all the things that had happened in this huge story, all the things that had brought us to that one moment, to that great tipping point in this vast story. Uh, They remind us that this story, the story of Advent, is not a new and different story. Uh, It's not a standalone story. It's not something that can be torn out of the biblical story and just read on its own. It's their way of telling us that this is a chapter within a much bigger story. It's their way of telling us that if we don't understand what came before, we're not going to be able to fully appreciate what what comes next. And I also think it's their way of telling us that what comes next is going to make all the difference. It's what's going to reveal to us exactly what kind of story this is. Now, I know this is a little bit unusual, but I, it's, you know, it's Advent season. We only do this once a year. Uh, and I want to take some time this morning to follow Matthew's lead, uh, to remind us of how we got here. Our series this morning is on the stories of Advent. And so I want to take just a few minutes, I hope just a few minutes, uh, to situate this story this chapter within the larger story that we find it. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it with me to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, They're right there on the back of the pew in front of you. I would encourage you to open that to Matthew chapter 1 because what we're going to do is we're going to use that genealogy as a map for just a few minutes this morning. Uh, Because what Matthew does is he has helpfully edited and organized this genealogy to remind us, before we even get to Jesus' birth, that we are entering into the middle of a vast and important story. We're entering, actually, I think Matthew suggests, at the climax, at the tipping point of a much bigger, much older story. If you look there, Matthew 1.1, he tells us right off the bat, he gives us the kind of overview, that this story we're about to read is the story of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Already we know in verse 1 that we are entering into a story that goes back at least as far as Abraham. And then if you look underneath that, your Bible probably has the genealogy divided into three sections. Uh, I would think of it as three movements within this huge story, right? So look at the first movement. The first movement goes from Abraham, God calling Abraham and making a covenant with him, to King David, sitting on the throne of of, of all Israel in Jerusalem. Now, how do we get there? How do we get from from Abraham to David? Well, if you start in Genesis, we, we, we know that God created this good and wonderful world. He created human beings to be his partners, his stewards in governing creation. And we know that almost right away, we human beings, we blow it. We reject God. We reject his wisdom. And we turn our backs on him. And it looks like in those early chapters in Genesis that this this whole project is going to fall apart. It goes badly off the rails, uh, and and we get this worldwide flood. And if you didn't know our God, you would think, well, maybe that's it. You know, a neat little experiment, but it didn't work out. But of course, that's not who our God is. It's not how he works. And a few chapters later, Genesis chapter 12, God calls this guy named Abraham, and he says, I want to make a covenant with you. I will be your God, and you and your descendants, you will be my people. And God makes some big promises to Abraham. He says, I promise that I will bless you. 
I will make you the father of a great nation. Actually, I'll make you the father of many nations. Kings, he promises Abraham, kings will be descended from you. And one day, I will bless the whole world through you and your descendants. It's an incredible start. And honestly, as we go through movement one of the story, it has a pretty significant upward trajectory. Now there's ups and downs. For a while, Abraham's descendants are enslaved in Egypt, but God rescues them and brings them out of Egypt. And then God brings them to the promised land, a land that God gives them to live in, to be his people and his partners in this new project of rescue. And, and eventually this culminates with God anointing David, a man after God's own heart, to be king of Israel. And God not only affirms the covenant with David, he makes a new promise to David. He says, David, I promise you that your line, your house, will rule forever. Man, it's, it's a glorious high point in this, in this story. Uh, it's just straight upward trajectory in this first movement. That brings us, Matthew says, to movement two. King David to exile in Babylon. Man, right away we look at that end point and we go, "Uh uh-oh, something went wrong. And something did go wrong. And it it, it happened slowly but pretty steadily. It started with David's son uh, Solomon, who, who oversaw a time of great prosperity and wealth. But in that time of prosperity and wealth, Israel started to think, that maybe they were fine on their own. Maybe they didn't need God, and they forgot that everything they had, they had received from God as a gift. And as they turned their back on him, again, there's ups and downs. It wasn't straight down. Um, Things fell apart. The kingdom split into two. The northern tribe was eventually conquered by the Assyrians and disappears from history. And then later, as Matthew tells us, the southern tribes were conquered by the Babylonians And deported, exiled, they were uprooted from their homes and taken to a foreign land. If the first movement was mostly up, the second movement is mostly down. Uh, We end that second movement at what must have felt like rock bottom. They have no Davidic king, they don't live in the land God promised them, and they lived as foreigners and exiles under pagan rule. That brings us to the third movement. Uh, And the third movement starts out great, and it probably seemed at first like like we were on another upward trajectory because the Persians conquered the Babylonians and Cyrus the Great said to Israel, you're free to go back to your homes. And actually he says, you know what? I found in the storehouses here all the stuff that the Babylonians looted from your temple. Take it all with you. Refurbish the temple. And it must have seemed like a miracle. It was a miracle. Here they are returning to their homeland. It was this great and glorious moment they had waited for, longed for their whole time in exile. And then then they get back and they discover that in their absence, other people had moved into their land. Other people had moved into their houses and they weren't excited to see the original inhabitants returned. So good news, we're returning from exile, but then bad news, we find out they're surrounded by enemies on all sides. But then there was more good news because they did. They refurbished the temple. They rededicated this second temple. And they must have been excited about that. They must have thought, here, this is the real tipping point, right? It's it's surely going to be uphill from here. But even that turned out to be a little bit of a disappointment. Uh, We read that there there were people alive at the dedication of the second temple who had seen the original temple, and they wept. 
Not because the new one was dedicated, but because they remembered the glory of the old one and the new one just fell short. And maybe what was worse, when the original temple was dedicated by Solomon, the presence of God descended visibly in a cloud before the eyes of all the people so that they would know that their God dwelt among them. And when they dedicated the new temple, nothing. Maybe God was there, maybe he wasn't. That was the third movement. It was up and down. It was indeterminate. It was a bunch of of what felt like, in hindsight, false summits, right? It looked like we had been at a tipping point when they returned from exile, but then we weren't. It looked like we were at another tipping point when they rededicated the temple, but then we weren't. And so it left the people alive at the time, at the eve of Jesus' birth, wondering When was that tipping point going to come? And when it came, more importantly, which direction were things going to go? What kind of story was this going to be? What was movement for going to bring them? You know, just to to let you know, the Pharisees thought this was going to be a story of punishment too, too long delayed. They thought in movement four, God was going to return to his people and sweep all their enemies before them. They thought Israel, that had been exiled and downtrodden, would now be exalted and that they would have their revenge on the pagans who had mistreated them. Through military victory and conquest, they just knew God was going to punish their enemies, foreign and domestic. They thought it was going to be a story of Israel's exile and of the punishment of everyone else, or of Israel's exaltation and the punishment of everyone else. Others, though, feared that Movement 4 was going to reveal this to be a different story, a story of failure. They feared that Israel had fallen too far short one time too many. They feared, as they looked back over this weird third movement, that maybe what had happened is that God had moved on, that he had forgotten them and abandoned them, And they feared, maybe most of all, that God was right to do it. After all, they were supposed to be God's holy people. They were supposed to be the means by which God would bless all the people of the world. And yet they had turned out to be just as sinful and just as badly in need of rescue as everyone else. Perhaps, they thought, God was done with them. Perhaps movement four was just the end of this old story. So as we come to Advent, we should be asking, what kind of story is this? What is going to happen in movement four? Because surely now what happens next will make all the difference. Surely it will tell us what kind of story this was. Well, look with me now, if you would, at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Because here we have the Apostle John living during that fourth movement, reflecting back on the tipping point, looking back over those years in his life, asking himself this question, what kind of story is this? And here's what he says. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who has been born of God and knows God loves Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God has so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but, but, if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. What kind of story is this? This great and ancient story of God and Israel and all creation? Is it a story of punishment? Is it a story of failure? No, John says. What God reveals dramatically and surprisingly at the advent of Jesus' birth is that this is a story of love. Specifically, it is a story of God's love, God's great and gracious love for all people. And John makes two points about God's love I'd like us to to explore together this morning. First, he tells us that this story is a story of God's love for us. God's love for us. Uh, This passage tells us at least two things about that. Uh, First, verse 10. John reminds us famously that God's love came first. This is love, John says. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. God's love came first. He loved us before we would or even could love him. Paul puts the same idea more bluntly when he says that while we were still the enemies of God, while we were enemies of God, while we lived in rebellion against God, God sent his son to die for us. Both statements get at the same reality, which is that God's love came first. He initiated When we were alienated from God, unwilling and unable to go to him, even if we had wanted to and we didn't, we could not have fought our way through to heaven. But God instead came down to us. That's love, John says. Not that we loved him. Not that we strove and fought for a relationship with God, but that he humbled himself and entered our world as a human being. Because of God's great love for us, He entered our world. He came for us first. John says God's love came first. Second, God's love for us is sacrificial. God loved us sacrificially. One of the things I love about this passage uh, is that John doesn't just assume that when we hear the word love, that we know or we automatically know what he means. Uh, Maybe more to the point, he doesn't assume that we mean by love what God means by love. And so he does uh, what any good communicator should do, which is he defines his terms. Look, John lives in the Greco-Roman world. He knows his culture has just stretched and twisted that word into all sorts of different meanings and shapes. And so John says, listen, that's not what I'm talking about. When I say that God loves us, what I mean is this. I mean... Uh, that God so loved us that he sent his son to die for us. When God says he loves us, in verse 9 and 10, what he means is that he was willing to send his one and only son as a sacrifice so that we might live. Uh, In other words, when John writes that God loves us, he doesn't mean that God has a feeling for us, you know, fondness or affection. It's not a mere feeling. It is also that, but it is primarily that he is willing to pay the price, 
to rescue us and to redeem us, to restore us to life with him. This is a story of God's sacrificial, costly love. When John says that God is love, that's what he means. That this is a God who is willing to rescue us even at great cost to himself. So Advent, first and foremost, is a story of God's love for us, for the world that he has made. But there's a second point here, too, that I don't want us to miss. Advent is also the story of God's love through us, his love through us. Look with me again at verses 11 to 12. John writes, Dear friends, since God has loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now I think John has done something subtle but brilliant and important in these few verses here. So let's take it one verse at a time. Look, he's just laid out very clearly the nature of God's gracious and costly love for us. And so now he challenges us. He says, look, We've established, and more to the point, God has proven how much that he loves us. He has proven how much he has loved us. So now John challenges us. He says, since God has so loved us, we ought to love one another. We are bound to love one another. Uh, it's, it's a classic uh, application here, classic formulation. It's a call to obey, to obey this command to love one another, rooted in a deep theological truth. God has shown great love to us, therefore, we ought to show love to one another. Clear and simple. But then he goes on uh, and makes an incredible claim. Look at verse 12. At first, if you read through this passage, it feels like he has all of a sudden changed topics, right? We're talking about God is love, he has loved us, so we should love one another. And then out of nowhere, you get this line, no one has seen God. And you think, well, what, what's, what's that have to do with anything? Well, then John tells us, right? He says, no one has seen God, but, but if we love one another, we reveal God to a world who does not know him. When we, having received and been filled with God's own love, allow the love of God to overflow into the lives of those around us, John says that a watching world can catch a glimpse of God in that love for one another. In fact, I would put it more strongly. I think what John is arguing here is that this is how God has chosen to reveal himself to our world. His great, in his great and gracious love for us that produces in us a great and gracious love for one another. Let me say that again. It's a little wordy. God has chosen to reveal himself through his great and gracious love for you that produces in you a great and gracious love for others. Let me say it a different way. When we let the love of God reach through us into the lives of those around us, we make our God known to a world that has not yet seen him. 
That's already pretty impressive, but John hammers it home with the next clause, with an image I have always loved and I've always found compelling. He continues on in verse 12, and he says this. He says, when we love one another, God's own love is made complete in us. Now, I'd like you to just try and think about that for a minute and and try to imagine what that means. The love of God, okay, we just... John just defined that for us. So, so that same love that led God to lay down his life for us while we were his enemies, that divine, all-conquering, never-failing love will somehow be made complete in you, in us, when we love one another. I consider what that means, just, just practically. It, it means that you are not intended to be the terminus of God's love. That's not the plan. God's plan, God's purpose, John says, is for his love to so fill you and so transform you that it overflows your life into the lives of those around you so that you can't help but love those around you. I like to picture, you know, you are so filled with God's love that it just, it leaks out of you everywhere you go. You can't help it. It's it's this all-conquering love of God so overflowing your own life, that it doesn't matter whether you're at home, whether you're at work, whether you're at school, everywhere you go, the love of God leaks from you because you've been so filled with his own love. That, John says, is the plan. The plan is is this, that then and only then, when God's love for you, when his love for you reaches through you into the lives of others, Then and only then, John says, is God's love made complete in you. Now look, the last thing I want to do this morning is to undersell God's love for you. His great and gracious, never-stopping, all-conquering love for you. In fact, I was thinking about this week, and I don't think even if I tried, even if I wanted to, I don't think I would be able to overstate it, to overpromise or exaggerate it. If the message of Advent is anything, it is this. However great you think God's love is for you, however great you think that is right now, it's greater than that. I don't care what you're picturing, it's greater. That's the message of Advent. His love for you was so great that he sent his only son to die so that you might live with him forever. That's the truth. That's the message of Advent And it is the beating heart of this story of God in creation. This great story in which we live, you know, I don't know, we might be in movement four, we might be in movement five. I don't know how to divide that up. But I know that whatever movement it is, it is within this larger story of God's great and gracious love for all that he has made. But even with that... I want to say this morning that if we just stop there, we're missing half of John's message. This is not just a story of God's love for us. It is also a story of God's love through us. The love of God, which right now all over the world is, is transforming minds and convicting hearts of the truth, that divine love that is revealing our God to the world, that love, John promises us, can be made complete in you. It waits, actually, is the way I think about it. It waits for us to love one another, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
It waits for us to love our neighbors, both literal and just the people God brings across our path. It waits for us, even, Jesus would tell us, to love our enemies. And the moment we do that, the moment we do that, John says, God's love is made complete in us. The love of God for us is a great gift and a blessing, but greater still is for God's love to be made complete in you. When we let the love of God overflow our lives into the lives of others. This past Wednesday, I picked up my kids from youth group. Uh, we, we dropped off some neighbors. We pull into my driveway, uh, and it's, it's dark, you know, because it's dark at like, whatever, four o'clock these days, and we're coming home at nine, um, and we're pulling into the driveway, and my daughter, Evie, says, how come half of our Christmas lights aren't on? And I look, and sure enough, she's right. And so, you know, I like groaned, because who knows what the problem is there, right? And I said, oh, you're right, Evie. I, who, I, why aren't they on? So we pull into the garage. She goes in the house, and I'm already just imagining the worst-case scenario, because I'm thinking, you know, it's probably what it usually is, which is that magical combination of bulbs has gone out, which means you'll never be able to find which bulbs burnt out. You can't replace them. And I'm going to, you know, now we had tried to get ahead of the game. We put up the lights while the weather was warm and nice. And now I'm going to have to put the ladder on icy ground when it's freezing cold and take down the old strand, put up the new strand. But I thought, okay, wait, before, before I go there, let's just, let's troubleshoot, right? So you work your way down the chain. So I, I pull up the app on my phone because we got it in a, in a smart plug and I make sure that that smart plug is turned on. It's turned on. It's not the smart plug. I think, okay, so I go up to the outlet in the garage where the, everything's plugged in. Everything's still plugged in. Okay, that's too bad. So you work your way down the chain. So I, I follow the extension cord out of the garage up the steps to where the first strand of lights on that half of the ha- house is plugged in. And I look, and wouldn't you know it, that plug is about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way out. And so now I'm feeling excited, but I'm trying not to get too excited because I'm thinking, can it be this easy? Is, is it, is it, am I, all I'm going to have to do is just push this plug together? So, you know, I, I bend down there, I clean out the ice and snow in between, I push the plugs together, and the second I did that, two things happened almost at the same time, right? The first thing that happened is that that circuit, which had previously been open, it had been incomplete, was now completed. And what that meant, for those of you who aren't electrical engineers, is that now uh, all that power, all that potential, which had previously ended at my extension cord, now passed through the extension cord into all my strands of lights, right? Now all of that power, all of that potential, which, by the way, here's the thing, right? All of that electrical power, all of that energy... That was in the extension cord the whole time. But Evie couldn't see it, I couldn't see it, no one would have known that, but there it was. All that energy, all that power right there in the cord, but we couldn't tell. But the moment I pushed that plug together, all that power passed through into the lights and into the wreath, and that circuit that had once been incomplete was now complete. And because of that, a second thing happened, almost at the same time. You see, I knew the circuit was complete, because all those lights came on. All the lights came on. All of a sudden, all of this power and energy, which a minute before had been totally invisible to me, 
immediately became visible. And not just visible, visible for blacks. You could walk all the way down to the end of my street where it turns and you could still see those lights. You could all of a sudden see all that power and potential that had been there in the extension cord, ending at the extension cord. It had now passed through. And when it passed through, that circuit became complete. And all of a sudden, what had been invisible became visible. Not just to me, by the way, visible to my neighbors, visible to anyone who happened to drive by. When that circuit was completed, the power that had once been invisible became visible. Friends, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you know and have received the great love of God for you. You know it. You've received it. You've laid hold of it. God has poured his love into your life. And praise God for that. But John would remind us that that's not the end. That God's purpose in pouring out his love is not that you would be the terminus, that you would be the end of it. He would remind us that we are all now, every one of us, We are like my extension cord. We are full of that power and potential and energy of God. It sits in us waiting for that circuit to be made complete. And God's desire, his his earnest desire, is that we would let his love reach through us into the lives around us. And here's what John promises. It's an amazing promise. He promises that if we will do that, if we will reach out to those around us in love, that God's love will be made complete in us. And that when God's love is made complete in us, as we love those around us, that all of a sudden, that power and love of God that had been invisible to a watching world will all of a sudden be made visible. That, John says, is how God has chosen to reveal himself to our world. We talk at our church a lot about being shaped by God's story, or at least we try to. And this passage, I think, provides a a very clear example of what that looks like. Look, when we are shaped by God's story, by the story we just sort of looked over very briefly this morning, the story of Abraham and David, the story of the incarnation and the resurrection, when that story shapes our lives... What that looks like is us letting the love of God reach through us into our neighbor. That's the shape this story molds us into. And Advent, if it does anything, should remind us of that story. It's the tipping point, friends. It's the moment when God revealed to us what kind of story this was. It was the moment in the story that changed everything. From that moment on, the trajectory was completely different. It should remind us of that story, but Advent also, I think, should call us to participate in the story. This isn't somebody else's story. The reason we celebrate it, the reason we invited all those kids up here this morning, the reason we light these candles is to remind us that this is our story. This is the story we live in. We aren't in our own story. We're in movement four or movement five of God's great story. And that's the story that should shape our lives. God invites us to participate in his story. So I want to close this morning by giving us a little time 
and inviting us to participate. And here's how I'd like us to do it this morning. I'm going to give you a few minutes to reflect. I want, I want us to invite God to show us where his love sits incomplete in our lives. You know, if you want to keep running with my electrical analogy here, I want you to take stock of the different relationships that you have right now uh, and to let God speak to you. Let, let the Holy Spirit reveal to you, man, where are those relationships where you have unplugged the cord, where you have not let the love of God reach through you into the lives of those around you? I don't know what it's going to be for you, um, maybe you have a neighbor who is just seems determined to make your life difficult, and you've unplugged that, and you've said, nope, I, I just I can't see how, how to let the love of God reach through to that person. Maybe you have a coworker who just drives you crazy and makes your job difficult and uncomfortable, and you've just unplugged it. You've said, nope, I, I, not this relationship. Maybe it's someone at school who enjoys embarrassing you, and you've unplugged that. You've said, I'm, I'm not letting the love of God travel through in this direction. Maybe it's someone in your own house or your own family that you're just struggling to love and you don't know why. Maybe you do know why and it's just a struggle. I want to encourage you this morning. We all have those moments. And the, just to remind you that the story of Advent is not that God had called us to let our love overcome those obstacles. He just wants us to let his love overcome them. And his love is greater. It's his power, his energy inside of you, not your own. We don't have to do it on your own. So I would encourage you, just bow your heads for a moment. Take some time to reflect. Think back on those relationships you're in right now. Where is their difficulty? Where is it that you need this morning to let the love of God for you reach through you? Just take a moment. Let, let the Spirit of God reveal that to you. someone in mind, I'd invite you to pray along with me. Heavenly Father, we, we all have people in our lives that we struggle to love. Uh, people that you have brought up across our path uh, that, that, that have made it difficult for us to let your love reach through us to them. And Lord, we come before you this morning to, to confess, to acknowledge that, that we're not up to the job that if it were up to us, we would not be able to love these people. And so, Lord, we ask for you to work in our heart. We ask you to help us to see them with your eyes. We ask, God, that you would give us compassion for them. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to simply obey, to reach out in love and trust that the all-conquering love of God will not be stopped here either. In your name we pray. Amen. Now that's not a magic formula. Uh, it's the first step. 
Uh, If you're like me, you may need to pray this prayer often, maybe even daily. Uh, You may need to remind yourself before you encounter this person, man, come before God. Invite him to help you. Ask God for his love to be made complete in you as you love those around you. Thank you.